My name is Stephen Pinecker, and I have the YouTube channel uh, Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the Restoration. And um, one of the things I um, wanted to mention is that I've been kind of been working on this presentation in my mind for a while. And uh, Paul had uh, came to me, um, and we've scheduled it twice, and I had to cancel. And I thought, you know, three strikes, you're out, Steve. You better uh, better come up the bat here and uh, put out this presentation. So I call this my beta version because I feel like I'm still a work in progress, but it's a, a Protestant defense of the Book of Mormon. And um, and so I just wanted to uh, thank you very much, Paul, by the way. And I'm recording this also for my program. Hopefully uh, this will be on my channel as well. I just want to encourage people. The Book of Mormon Perspectives Forum meets every Monday night. And uh, it's a great resource for those of you who want to interact, whether you're evangelical, atheist, a member of any restoration branch, it's a great resource for you to come on and join uh, join the conversation. It's a great group to be a member of, and many people um, who've been on my program have also been on uh, given presentations here. So um, I, I wanted to just go over a few things. Um, again, this is a work in progress. I'm still working on this thing, but I really and what I want to do eventually is put together a presentation. This eventually for like Sunstone or for even Rob Meldrum's firm foundation. And so I also want you guys to give me feedback on what you think about this presentation so far as well, um, and, and maybe even offer some critiques at the end. Um, part of what I'm doing here is kind of what Josh Gailey of the Church of Jesus Christ, he's an evangelist with them, and he wrote this book, Witnessing Miracles, Historical Evidence for the Resurrection and the Book of Mormon. Of course, he came on and talked about this to the group as well. And I try to um, think outside the box, right? Um, I'm an evangelical Christian. I'm a Protestant. And we have these, and we, and a lot of your modern apologetics is very much within the Protestant world is influenced by uh, evangelical apologetics. And so what Josh did was he took many of the apologetic arguments that Christians and evangelicals use as evidence for the resurrection. He just then uses those same tools that are provided by them to also show the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And it's interesting because I, I tell people, um, and I've mentioned this on other podcasts before, that I do believe that there were plates. And uh, I do believe that the plates were a tangible item. I, I, I always tell people, I look at it this way. Um, Dan Vogel, who's one of the leading critics of the Book of Mormon, believes there were plates. And Richard Bushman, one of the uh, leading um, uh, uh, people who believes in the Book of Mormon, of course, wrote, wrote Rough Stone Rolling, also believes there were plates. So I always tell people, it's kind of like the empty tomb. The empty tomb is that place where either Jesus rose from the grave or the disciples stole the, stole the body. Faith comes into what, what, your, what the answer is going to be, what you think it is. It's the same thing with what was under that frock. Were these plates made by a man or were these plates delivered by an angel? And so that's the question that we all have to pose ourselves. Both Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, we all have to grapple with these questions. And I think Josh does a great job. And so I'm kind of doing this in the spirit of what Josh, um, what Josh has done with his book. I also had him come on and talk about this uh, as a Christian apologist. These are thumbnails from some of my episodes. But I, I wanted to show these because this is my engagement with the Book of Mormon. And part of my the idea of me engaging the Book of Mormon is to hear all the different perspectives on it, pro and con, those who believe it was purely a man-made object and those who believe it was it was uh, divinely inspired, uh, some who believe that he was doing a literal translation from the plates, others were who believe that maybe he was more uh, 
using that that he was using the plates as a tool, but not wasn't really actually translating anything from the plates. And there's other different you know opinions on that as well. And of course, one of the things that I've done is in 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 addition to it is have these engagements with people who uh, view the Book of Mormon as scripture, holy scripture. And of course, there's Robert from Book of Mormon editions. I had him on the program along with Richard Saunders, who's since been on the program a couple times now and is coming back on, where I'm again engaging the text, engaging the history of the Book of Mormon. And that's why I have, a, if you will, you could call a high view of the Book of Mormon. Another episode I just recently put out was uh, art in, uh, that has been inspired by the Book of Mormon. Now, one of the things I think a lot of Christians, you know, like to make, you know, like when they're making arguments um, in favor of Christianity, is one of the things they'll say is look at the beautiful art that the Bible and Christianity has inspired. And I go to those same Christians and say, look at the beautiful art that the Book of Mormon has inspired. And so I think that it's really important that many of the arguments that Protestants use, that evangelicals use in in their in favor of their team, if you will, these very same arguments can be used uh, in favor of the Book of Mormon, and I just think that that has to be taken into account. By the way, this painting in the background was done by C. C. A. Christensen, and uh, this this was from a panorama that was used for uh, for reach outreach to the uh, Indians and Native Americans in uh, in Utah. And I actually helped identify this as being amongst the oldest paintings ever of a Book of Mormon story. Again, here's my Protestant engagement with the Book of Mormon, with the history, with the story. And then just to give you an idea, you know, of my engagement with the rest with the Book of Mormon is I had one of the biggest atheists on YouTube come on my program to talk about the Book of Mormon. Mm. And the reason I had this atheist come on, his name is Aaron Ra was because he's a man of integrity, because he has de deconstructed the scriptures of all the faiths, including the Eastern religions, as well as the Quran. He spent three years going through the Quran, deconstructing the Quran. Well, I thought if that guy has the guts to do that, then I'm going to have him on my show because he's currently doing a deconstruction of the Bible, but he's also just started a series where he's doing a deconstruction on the Book of Mormon. And he doesn't, he believes all scripture is man-made. So that's another perspective of the Book of Mormon that I'm in, engaging with and grappling with. And I had him on my program, but also he's doing the series. And guess what? I, I, I put him on my show because I wanted to let parents know and their grandparents know that their kids and grandkids are, are learning about the Book of Mormon from Aaron Ra. And so we need to be aware of the different voices out there and the different influences. Here's another atheist that I had on, uh, Bryce Blakenagle. Um of the Naked Mormonism podcast, and he thinks that psychedelics were used in the early LDS church. Well, guess what? There's a lot of scholars who think that there was psychedelics used in the first century church, another parallel. Now, I am very skeptical of this idea, but Bryce goes so far as to say that he believes that Book of Mormon stories were influenced by psychedelic experiences, that they're describing psychedelic experiences, including, uh, you know, people having these visions. He thinks that Lehi's vision is a type of psychedelic trip and, and, then, he, and then being slain in the spirit, people who are, you know, all these different manifestations. He looks at it from a naturalistic explanation. There is no God. There are no angels. So what caused all these things and all these uh, things to happen? He also believes that the early manifestations of the Church of Christ were actually uh, influenced by psychedelics. Of course, that's just one perspective. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it's an interesting one. And again, that's an atheist perspective, again, engaging all these different voices. And of course, we have the Freemasonry and Mormonism connection, and then how people believe that there might be parallels between Mormonism 
and Freemasonry. Now, this is the thing what I find so fascinating is another parallel between Protestantism and Christianity is that many Protestants were also Masons. Many Protestants at the time um, of the Restoration were also performing similar temple ceremonies that were described that the, the, the Mormons were also using. So many evangelicals were doing similar temple ceremonies at the time and still do that. Well, now the parallels aren't as much, but they were, they were closer back then. So another interesting thing, but also he talked about there was a, perhaps a uh, Masonic influence within the pages of the Book of Mormon. And Don Bradley, who's faithful, also believes this as well. And then, of course, another engagement I have as an evangelical is with Casey Kern's website, the Book of Mormon Online, um, which is a useful resource, but it's also a great place where you have like three people here, a mainline Protestant, an evangelical, and a Latter-day Saint, all engaging the text of the Book of Mormon, taking it seriously, again, and I think this is the important thing. This is, we, we do ourselves a great service as Christians, as evangelicals, if we don't take the time to engage the text. And, and so this is where we, we're going to start talking about that. So what is a Protestant? Now, I come from a long, long line of Dutch Protestants, Calvinists. I even have a Pinecker who was a reformer. So this is, I mean, I have, my lineage goes much even further back than a lot of U U Utah saints who trace their pine to pioneer heritage. I can, I can trace back uh, re reforms on both sides of the family going into the, the 1600s. So the Protestant Reformation has actually been a really big deal in our family. Um, and, uh, and many of my family are still members of, the, of, of these Calvinistic Reformed churches in which our family is part of our tradition. But what is a Protestant? Well, in, in I mean, many of these Protestant uh, uh, leaders, of course, were former Catholic priests. Um, they had the opportunity to engage the scriptures because, of course, they could read and they were they had access to these texts and they took the, the Bible very, very seriously. And they came up with this idea. One of the key concepts of of the Protestant Reformation is sola scriptura, which is uh, scripture al alone, alone. In other words, that's our authority. We're using this, the Bible is our authority, and we don't recognize the authority of the Catholic Church. If, if, if the church says one thing and scripture says another, we're going to go with scripture. And that was kind of like the basis for the Reformation. And of course, I one of the things I really appreciate about the Restoration is that many look at the uh, Reformation as a forerunner to the restoration, right? If there's no reformation, maybe there's no restoration, I guess you could say. So this is another thing where Protestantism has plays a role within the context of the restoration and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Um, and so, yeah, so I guess I would say I identify as a Protestant. That's that's my heritage. But also, um, there's also the credo, what's called creedal Christianity. So typically, the, most of the um, Protestant denominations would recognize like the first seven church councils. And so that, that would put them in alignment with the Catholics, at least for those first seven church councils. So that's what would be called creedal Christianity, which is a lot of your mainline or a lot of your Protestants would, would fall under that line as well. So would I, would I say I'm a creedal Christian, a, a creedal Christian? Yeah, I guess I could recite the creeds, but there would have to be caveats here and there. Um, Cause I do think, again, the creeds are man-made documents. Uh, they are not scripture. They are man's attempt to grapple with it and understand it. And that's why I think it's so important that we understand this concept of uh, as well, 
because I think the Book of Mormon is this really fascinating document. And uh, this is a little bit from my presentation I gave to this group last year, and I just want to kind of refresh everybody's memory. Um, as a young child, I was very spiritually minded, and I some and I sometimes thought that we needed another Bible for our time. I also realized by high school that there's nothing in Scripture about the canon being closed, and that's the other thing. Okay, what does it mean to be a Protestant? Well, partly was that you were opposing the Catholic Church, but then what happens is is that you have this what was called the Counter Reformation done by the Catholic Church. And one of the things that they did in the count, which gave us the Council of Trent, and one of the things that happens is that they, at that moment, the Council of Trent closes the canon of Scripture. Think about that. It's the Catholics in their counter-reformation against Protestantism close the canon. And what I find so fascinating is that basically the Protestants accept that. Now, of course, the, the canons are both a little bit different. You have what are called the deuterocanonical books, which is what Protestants refer to as the Apocrypha. Catholic Church calls them the deuterocanonical. But, and, but again, they were the ones that, that, that closed the canon and said, no more. Well, I just, as a young kid, thought that that was a really problematic thing because that's not in the scriptures itself. Uh, and also, somebody who comes from the charismatic movement one of the biggest criticisms that were thrown at us, and again, the charismatic and Pentecostal movements are a type of restorationist movement because we want to restore the gifts back to the church. That was the whole idea. The restoration, let's restore the gifts back to the church. And you had these people who were um, who were uh, people who didn't believe that that that, 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 that that these gifts were for our current times. and And it was almost like, the, these same criticisms that would be used to say, no, no, tongues aren't for today. The gifts of the spirit aren't for today. And that same spirit also says, well, no scripture, there can't be no no scripture. And that to me, in one sense, limits God. We're basically telling God, no, um, we've, we've already made our minds up on this. Uh, we've got our creeds. Uh, we, we believe that, uh, no, that the gifts aren't around, that they died off of the, of the apostles. And uh, we're going to keep that canon closed. And that, to me, limits God. So that always really bothered me. And then, of course, as you all know, many of you, uh, my first encountering of the Book of Mormon, it was as a seven or eight-year-old boy. And that's that's the edition uh, that I came across. And I got into, in, entranced with the imagery of the Book of Mormon. And again, this is a young Protestant boy uh, who's encountering these other scriptures and seeing these uh, awesome uh, paintings um, and and really compelling uh, images, very similar to what looks almost biblical, looks like something that happened in the Bible, and 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 even like when we have Jesus coming to the new world, it uh, in my mind it almost looked like okay, this looks like Jesus coming back in the Old Testament times. It, you know, like this, what happened? The second coming, the second, and, and you know, and I just find that to be interesting. So, what? It, one of the things that caused me to um, to engage the uh, uh, Book of Mormon, the very first, just to give you guys some history, um, the very first time that I really engaged the text of the Book of Mormon was through Christopher Thomas, of course, who's been a guest on this. Christopher Thomas's book, A Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon, A Literary and Theological Introduction. So that's my first engagement of the text. And one of the things that I... I um, I find so interesting, hold on one second, is 
this is the first time I delved into the Book of Mormon. It has also led to my first in-depth conversation about this book of scripture on YouTube, no less. So imagine I never talked with anybody about the Book of Mormon ever in my entire life, like in-depth, until I interviewed Christopher Thomas, a Pentecostal theologian, and we talk about the Book of Mormon. And that's my first conversation, which is recorded, where I talk about my engagement with this scripture. And uh, I think it's great that it's kind of documented and it's kind of fun. But again, this is a really important book. And those many of you have, have gotten this book and felt that it's brought a lot of cool insights to the text. And I think that's another great thing. And this is another area that I like is, um, is the, the, the book of jo that uh, Jonathan Neville wrote, Infinite Goodness, Joseph Smith, Jonathan Edwards, and the Book of Mormon. By the way, that's that's not the that's not the cover they ended up going with. I actually had an image of the old cover, just pointing that out. But um, I think this is what really is fascinating to me is that Jonathan Neville has a very um, interesting view of the translation process of the Book of Mormon, and that Joseph was a conventional translator, and he was influenced by the writers and preachers of his time. And he shows pretty uh, convincingly in many ways that. Jonathan Edwards had a major influence on the translation process of the Book of Mormon. Not saying necessarily that he's copying Jonathan Edwards, but he's using phraseology that Jonathan Edwards would have used. Now, why is this important? Because I'm making a Protestant defense of the Book of Mormon, and there was the most important Protestant minister, the most uh, in in American history, who gave one of the most important sermons ever. Um, is also was a very influential person in this period of time. And many of the thoughts and ideas and concepts that Jonathan Edwards wrote about and preached about make their way into the Book of Mormon. I will also add that, you know, I was having a conversation with uh, John Hamer of the Community of Christ. And when he did a, a history of um, the early history of the, of the Church of Christ uh, and the Restoration, and which would become later the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and of course. But, um, and one of the things he says that if you just wanted to look at it from a purely like, like the idea that Joseph Smith was, for instance, King Benjamin's sermon, all right? He says that is almost a dictation of a 19th century revival preaching service, that we actually have something that's documented. And again, this is Joseph Smith being influenced by the people in, of his time. There is phraseology that King Benjamin uses that would have been very familiar to people who are attending Methodist uh, camp meetings. And so as Protestants, you should be enthralled with the idea of the Book of Mormon containing sermons that were uh, Protestant and that they're almost like transcriptions of what we would find uh, of services that people would have heard at that time. So it's actually part of a historical documentation of the Second Great Awakening in the United States. Now, this is just to re, re, uh, talk about a few things, what this evangelical finds accessible in the Book of Mormon. And, and I, I talked about some of this in my, my last presentation with you. And I'm going to get delve into this a little bit more. <clears throat> First of all, there's uh, Jesus saturates the Book of Mormon. Uh, Jesus is the center of the Book of Mormon. Um, it's almost like there's a countdown happening in the Book of Mormon for his coming. And they are aware of him. And they uh, we have a we we have a, a another thing that's so fascinating is we have Trinitarian doctrine in the Book of Mormon that makes it more Trinitarian in many ways than the Bible. And I'm going to expand on that in a little bit. And um, one of the other things that 
I, 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 one of the things I find accessible is that, and I, I mentioned this when I spoke at the Book of Mormon rally last year at Independence, was I talked about all the different doctrines that I agree with in the Book of Mormon as an evangelical, as a Protestant, and, and also that there's very little Nauvoo era doctrine or later doctrines that would be developed later after the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. There's very little of it actually in the Book of Mormon. So if you're a Protestant and you're an evangelical and you want to engage and encounter um, the, the restoration, the best place you can do it, in my mind, is within the pages of the Book of Mormon itself, that we can have a conversation there and that, and that, 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 that Christians should not be afraid of the Book of Mormon. This is the thing. This, you all have to understand this. To many Christians, the Book of Mormon is like the Satanic Bible. Many of them would not even want to have it in their home. Okay, so for, so I'm encouraging Christians, get a Book of Mormon, study it. Even if you don't believe it, it's an important document. It's an important uh, document that gives us 19th century sermons in it that you can read what people were hearing at that time. You have Jonathan Edwards in the Book of Mormon. And again, this is this, these are the influences. I'm not saying that he's copying. I'm saying that the translator, Joseph Smith, was influenced by the time and place he was in. And even Brigham Young said, that if the Book of Mormon was translated now, it'd be different than it was then, because he even understood the context of how the how much the translator brings to the table when, in the whole process. Um, it also has what we could call a high view of scripture. And this is what I would say to uh, more literal-minded Christians who take the Bible very literally, who believe that there was an Adam and Eve, and that there was a Noah's flood, and all these kind of things, that actually the Book of Mormon actually strengthens the uh, arguments in favor of a literalistic interpretation of the Bible. So even if you're a literalist, fundamentalist Christian, you should look at the Book of Mormon and, and engage it because you will find that is, a, that is a book that actually strengthens the Bible. It actually solves the Isaiah problem uh, because we now know that it is quotes from Isaiah when your higher critics and liberals that they don't like um, they're, they're deconstructing of scriptures. Well, we got this other thing that purports to be an ancient document that shows that Isaiah wrote the entire book of Isaiah on his own, and there weren't separate Isaiahs. But also one of the key things that I talked about in the past, and I'll talk about it again, is that one of the key themes of the Book of Mormon, which I think is a universal principle, which I think is very important, and this is, and this is a message to the people, and that is when man, when society turns their back on God, bad things happen. And that's the underlying theme of the Book of Mormon. This is part of the dialogue that it's having. And it keeps on telling you. And as a matter of fact, it's almost like a, it's almost a sad, it's a sad story because we know that we know what happens. And even the writers know that happens. And they're even shown what's going to happen in the future. And it's almost like there's this unfolding story of this is what happens when you decide to do your own thing and not follow God's way and, 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 and follow your own ways that it will lead to your society collapsing. And this is just to throw out a few criticisms um, of the Book of Mormon, and these are referred to as Book of Mormon's stumbling blocks, is that it teaches the fortunate fall. And I went over this last year with you guys. The Book of Mormon teaches works-based salvation, but I also would argue that so does the, uh, the Book of James. Faith without works is dead. Um, there are Mormon scholars who are uh, working on the idea that after all that we can do is a secondary thing that the main thing about that is actually grace is all about it. I find I think their approaches that they're taking. I think Jackson Washburn, um, who's who's attending um, Harvard Divinity, 
is one of those people who's engaging that concept. Um, and one of the other criticisms that I came came across is the uh, is Christ turning returning to the new world, and there's a lot of destruction that happens, which seems to be to be contrary to the Jesus of the New Testament. It almost like it's Yahweh. Jesus not only does Jesus come to the new world, but Yahweh from the Old Testament shows up into the picture. And that's a that's a stumbling block. But again, and I've talked about this before, but I also think that this could be a shadowing of an apocalyptic event. So we have temples that are destroyed in the new world. And this is actually, a, it, it, what happens is, is you have to understand that Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple would happen within the, that generation, within 40 years. And with about 80, 30, circa 80, 30, Jesus is saying that by 80, 70, we have the destruction of the temple, which is kind of like you have everything that happened with Christ, but then you also have this very important thing that Christ foretold the destruction of the temple that would happen. And this is the apocalypse, this is an apocalyptic moment that's happening. So I kind of think that one can say that what happens in the new world, even though it doesn't seem like it's in line with the Christ of the New Testament, it's actually a, it's a combination of eight of, of Christ AD 33 circa with the death and, and resurrection of Christ, but also the destruction of the, the temple brought into uh, into it as well. And so the, I think that's kind of how one could see that. Um, of course, the, the standard one is it seems to reflect 19th century Americana, which, of course, if we're going with Jonathan Neville's uh, thesis, uh, that, that, of course, it's going to be influenced by 19th century Americana, wh who, whenever a book is written, in, or more importantly, whenever a book is translated, it's always going to be reflective of the translator and the time and place. And of course, we know the standard criticism of why finding the plates in the process of translation, whether it was a seer stone, and and of course those are common, um, those are th th those are common uh, criticisms that are rendered uh, against against it as well. Um, but this is what I love. This is this is one of the great ironic verses that's used against the Book of Mormon, um, and it says in the Book of Revelation, "For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book." If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man, any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, whenever people would talk to, see, my families were, my families uh, were very much like evangelists. They would go and preach to people. They would do mission work. And they would be asked about the Book of Mormon, and they would use this verse saying, well, what about the Book of Mormon? And they say, well, no, actually, the Book of Revelation. Well, I knew there was a problem with this as a kid, and I'll tell you why I knew there was a problem. Well, there's a couple, and, then, and one of them, it, I, at the time, I thought, well, it's only talking about this book. It's only talking about the Book of Revelation. It's not talking about the Bible. See, a lot of Christians, what they did, what they thought was, this is at the very end of the book of the Bible, and it's telling you that this is the last book of the Bible, and if you guys add anything to it, you know, an epox on you, you're going to be cursed, right? This is what this is what the text is, was interpreted by people. But there's a problem, and there's a few problems with this verse. This is what makes it so ironic. Is that first of all, there were still books of the New Testament were still hadn't been written when the Book of Revelation was being written. So that would so that would say like it would be those verses couldn't be. Uh, viewed as being legit because they were written after this was written, right? So we know now that it definitely applies to that book. But what is the other interesting thing 
about this, 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 this is the great irony of this verse. This verse is not in the original transcripts. Okay. This was added in later by scribes. And what happened was, and any, and you can talk to um, biblical scholars, both believing and liberal or whatever. What happened was, there's what what happens is with biblical translation, and we find we can actually trace this, is that we would have the original Greek manuscripts, but they would also have uh, margin notes, all right, and sometimes the margin notes would make their way into the scriptures. They would they they can even show how they did this. So in the original manuscripts, this is not there. So it's the, what is understood is is that this was a word for the scribes. This is a reminder to the scribes. You make sure you copy this right and you get this and you don't add or take anything from it. And that actually, ironically enough, because again, it's not in the original manuscripts, makes its way into our modern Bibles. And so I, I just find that fascinating. And again, this is this is mainstream accepted biblical scholarship. So Again, that's another argument that this verse cannot be used against the Book of Mormon, and many think this is the strongest, is actually the weakest, because it doesn't even make its way into the into the original thing. And this is the and the other thing is is that you have Christians that this is their scripture, and it was added in; it wasn't in the original manuscript. Yet they get mad at new scripture that comes forth. This functions as scripture for them, but then they get mad at Mormons for ha having their own scriptures that functions for scripture for them, even though there's. We have we know that there were things that were added into the Bible. So then this was the most ironic of them all. Okay, so here's some things I want to talk about the Book of Mormon itself and getting back to the Trinity and Christology, which I think is central to the message I'm, I want to give tonight, is that there's a high Christology. And what does that mean? <laughs> well, some people look at Mark and the Book of Mark and think it's and Jesus isn't quite the divine figure. And then as the Gospels um, are written, we end up with John, which we have a very high Christology of John, of, of, of Christ in the book of John. But some, um, and, and, and the reason why I say this is important is because if this is a document that is influenced by the devil, which is what Mormon, uh, not Mormons, but what many evangelicals believe, it's not going to have these verses in here. The devil ain't going to produce this. That's why I know there's nothing devilish about this book. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace you may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. And he shall come into this world to redeem his people, and he shall take upon him the transgressions of those who believe on his name. And these are they shall have eternal life. And salvation cometh to none else. I mean, this is a high Christology. And this is something that any Protestant and any evangelical who have a high view of Christ can say amen to. Um, and so I think these are the verses that need to be grappled with. Again, this is a Christian book. The Book of Mormon does not function as scripture to me, but the Book of Mormon is a highly Christian book. And so Christians, in particular Protestants, evangelicals, you should not be afraid of it. One of the things that I really love is the Trinitarian Trinity. Now, look, others can look at these verses and, and, and maybe say that they're not Trinitarian. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that if these verses were in the Bible, these would be the verses 
that they would be using to defend the Trinity. All right. And after this manner shall ye be baptized in my name. For behold, verily I say unto you that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one. And I am in the Father and the Father in me and the Father and I are one. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty solid stuff there. Then we have ether, okay? And here's a high Christology in Old Testament times. So now we have something that's that purports to be written um, before much of the Bible was even written. Um, because thou knowest these things, ye are redeemed from the fall. Therefore, ye are brought back into my presence. Therefore, I show myself unto you. Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. In me shall all mankind have life that in that eternally, even those who shall believe in my name, and they shall become my sons and daughter. Now, some might say this is a binitarian, you know, uh, formula, but still, this is a this can be used very strongly as a Trinitarian verse. So those of you who have a high view of scripture, have a high view, a high Christology, and also believe in the Trinity, you have this other document that also gives can can actually bolster your arguments in, fa in, in favor of traditional Protestant theology and doctrine. Um, and one of the great things I want to add is this, is that now this is a great Trinitarian verse. But guess what? wasn't any original manuscripts. This was actually added by Erasmus. This is, this is, look, when I used to get in arguments with Jehovah's Witnesses, I knew about this verse and they were anti-Trinitarian. And then, even though this verse is in their Bibles, I still would not use it because I knew that the Provence of this scripture is not very solid. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these are three in one. This is not in the original manuscripts. Matter of fact, as the story goes, Erasmus, you have to understand the importance of Erasmus. Erasmus is the one who goes back and uses the Greek, original Greek manuscripts to put together a, a, a what would basically be all of our modern translations in King James Version is, uh, would all come from the work of Erasmus. And he was going and he wasn't using the Vulgate and, and the stuff that was older. He was going back to the original Greek. That's what he wanted to, to base his translations on. And they noticed that this verse was not in there. And he says, because there's no Greek, there's no Greek manuscript that has this verse. Well, somebody came up with a Greek manuscript, which, and he put it in, but uh, he, this was not, this is, the, there is no, there's no evidence that this verse was in the original manuscripts. It was added in. So, and this is the great irony that I think also, I, I look at it this way. This still, this verse functions as scripture to many evangelicals, to many Protestants, right? This functions as scripture, but it's not, it's it's only about a hundred, it was added into the Bible, into our modern uh, translations only within like 100, 150 years before the Book of Mormon came forth. So here you have a verse that gets canonized by Erasmus that's only a little bit older than the Book of Mormon. That functions as scripture, but no, the Book of Mormon can't function as scripture to Mormons, even though they're quoting verses that aren't much older than the Book of Mormon. Interesting. Um, so yeah, and that that um, that also just get, brings me back to this this whole journey that I've been on. You know, um, the channel started about a year and a half ago, and this is one of the very first groups that I started engaging. And I think one of the the key things that I've learned is some of the most wonderful, beautiful people I've ever met are people who are believers in the Book of Mormon. And what, Christ, what do they say? By their fruits, you shall know them. 
And I also, I think that the fruits, many of the fruits that have come forth from people who believe in the Book of Mormon are good. And, uh, and I think that that's something that needs to be taken into account. One of the other things that I do is when I engage people who are believers in the Book of Mormon, and I've had guests on my program, and I'd say, what is your favorite verse in the Book of Mormon or your favorite Book of Mormon story? Why don't you share it with my audience? And I go to, more, I go to evangelicals who are engaging Mormons. I said, listen, ask them what their favorite Book of Mormon story is. Engage them with their text. Show respect for their text, right? And then let them tell their stories about how the book. I talked to somebody last week on a Zoom call who told he was a Mormon all his life. And he said, I read the Book of Mormon. I became a born-again Christian. Now, he stayed in the church, but he said, I became a born-again Christian reading the Book of Mormon, right? So to me, as evangelicals and, and people who want to do outreach to Mormons, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and all the branches of the Restoration, um, engage the text of the Book of Mormon because it can actually be your best friend to actually open up dialogue and have conversation and recognize that I can tell you that people will tell you that the Book of Mormon means a lot to them and it's, and, and it's changed their lives in a very similar way that people would talk about how they had a born-again experience and it changed their lives. And so... This is something I actually, um, this this was last year, the very first Church of the Restoration I visited was the Church of Jesus Christ. And I actually, I should close with this last time, but I felt like it was apropos, um, is I start off an idea of starting a small YouTube channel of a subject I really enjoyed. During this journey, I've met many wonderful people from Community of Christ to the Restoration branches to the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, all the way to the Church of Jesus Christ. All have shown kindness to a stranger, a very Christ-like attribute. Thank you for welcoming me into your communities. And this is the thing. I just had dinner last week with, uh, with Joel Gailey, the president of the Church of Jesus Christ, a believer in the Book of Mormon and a fellow believer and brother in Christ. I want to thank you very much tonight for coming on.